If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. We are continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark together in this series called Our Servant King and taking a look at um, how Mark reveals to us the person of Jesus and our uh, rightful response to Him. So Mark chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll read for, together from verses 35 down through verse 44 as we open our sermon today. And in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, Mark writes, And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls Him Lord, so how is He His Son? And the great throng heard Him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And as he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. You know, um, up to this point in Mark chapters 11 and 12, Jesus has been engaged in debate and discussion uh, with skeptics, those who were questioning Jesus, those who were challenging Jesus, those who didn't want to yield to Jesus, particularly those who were skeptical of his authority. In other words, Jesus, where do you get the right to say the things that you're saying and to do the things that you're doing? And listen, skeptics in our day are not all that different. Most of the time, skeptics in our day of God, they want an airtight or a watertight argument for God's existence, right? Something that no water can seep through and no air can escape from. But God has not given us an airtight or a watertight argument for the existence of God. Now, while there are very many rational arguments for the existence of God, very many logical arguments for the existence of God, none of them is airtight or watertight. God did not choose us to give us that, but what He chose to give us, church, is this. He chose to give us an airtight and watertight person. Not argument, but person. In fact, all of Christian belief, all of Christian thought, all of Christian practice centers on and flows from the identity of Jesus Christ. And throughout modern history, listen, there have been many individuals who have had their own take on Jesus, and each one, as they've responded to Jesus out of their own perceptions of who He is, has advocated perhaps a different kind of life. But in this text before us this morning, I want to submit to you that it reveals two fundamental and foundational revelations for us. It reveals to us who Jesus is and how we ought to respond, and we're going to take a look at them in that order. So the first thing that we see in this text this morning that should be of importance to us is that this text reveals to us Jesus' true identity. 
See, in Mark 11 and 12, Jesus has faced a barrage of questions. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you've seen that. They've come from religious and political leaders in Jesus' day. A group of leaders in Mark 11 questioned Jesus' authority to teach the things that he was teaching and say the things that he was saying and do the things that he was doing. The Pharisees, right, we said the conservatives, the Herodians, the progressives, they team up together in Mark chapter 12 to try to trap Jesus in his words about the lawfulness of paying taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees cook up a question based on this hypothetical situation about relationships in the resurrection, which they didn't really even believe in to begin with. Then you've got the scribe who comes to Jesus toward the end of the text we looked at last week and asks Jesus to weigh in with his opinion on which was the heaviest or the greatest of the commandments in the law, which was a common debate and discussion among rabbis in Jesus' day. And yet at the end of all these encounters, I love the way Mark writes it in verse 34. Mark tells us that he silenced every single one of his opponents with his responses. And the result of that is that after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. In other words, he has shut us all up. Leave him alone, man, right? We're going to back off. Now, the, following that day of questions that Jesus receives from the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, the religious leaders of his, his day, Jesus continues to teach in the temple and he doesn't respond to a question, but he poses his own. He poses his own. And it's like in a game of volleyball, right? Whenever you're volleying back and forth right, with the opposing team, and like you, you, you dig it, and you set it, and you hit it back over the net, and eventually somebody just whoosh, spikes it right down your throat. That's exactly what's going on. Jesus has been volleying. Now it's time to end the volley. And in Mark chapter 12, in verse 35, Jesus asked the crowd, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? How, how can that be? Now, two things to note about this question. First of all, the setting is in the temple courts the place of religious authority of Jesus' day, the place where these kinds of questions would have been debated and discussed, but also the subject of this question, and it refers to the identity of the Messiah, the identity of the Christ, who this son of David would be. The question of identity that Jesus had already raised privately with his disciples on the road to Caesarea Philippi back in Mark 8, when he turns to them and says, who do the people say that I am? Okay, who do you say that I am? So he's already raised this question of identity with his disciples. Now he raises it publicly in the temple in Jerusalem. Now the question that he raises, church, it comes from Psalm 110, the most frequently cited Old Testament text in the New Testament, and particularly from the first line where Jesus quotes, The Lord said to my Lord. Now in our English translations, listen, Psalm 110 um, before we get to that, Psalm 110 was a, originally a coronation hymn. You know what that means? It means that it was sung every time a king was to be installed in Israel or in Judah. It was sung, chanted, or recited at their inauguration. And in our English translations, listen, it's a little confusing to us because we see the word Lord repeated twice. The Lord sang to His Lord. and so what, What's going on there? But in the Hebrew... There are two different words for Lord. The first one is Yahweh, which oftentimes in the Old Testament is cap, all caps, right? L-O-R-D, all capital letters. The second Lord in the text is the word Adonai. Okay, so lowercase Lord. The first in the Old Testament text, Psalm 110, refers to God. The second refers to the king at his coronation. 
This was, remember, chanted, sung, recited whenever the king's being installed. So God says to the king, sit at my right hand, the place of intimacy, the place of rule, the place of power, the place of dominion and honor, the place where he would execute justice on behalf of the people. So Yahweh, God, the Lord, says to my Lord, Adonai, the king, sit at my right hand until your enemies are like a footstool. Right? That's what they would say at the coronation. Because the king was seen as the vice regent of God. He ruled in God's place, the representative of God on the earth. He was seated symbolically at his right hand with intimacy. And all this was done every time they installed a new king until 586 B.C. And here's what's significant about that date. Because on that date... In 586 B.C., Babylon came in, ransacked Jerusalem, and took God's people away into captivity. And the Davidic monarchy crumbled. It crumbled. So at that point in Israel's history, this psalm took on new meaning. So whenever Jewish people thought about that psalm subsequent to or after 586 B.C., instead of referring to God and the king, it came to be understood in Judaism to be referring to God and His Messiah. Yahweh Adonai, God and His appointed Christ or Messiah who would come and whose kingdom would never end, it would never fall, it would never fail unlike the Davidic monarchy. This would have been the prevailing way this psalm would have been understood and interpreted in Jesus' day and the basis on which Jesus puts forward His question. Now, you're like, so what what does this have to do with me? Right? What does all this mean? I'm glad you asked. Okay? Here's what it means. The point of Jesus' question is this. If David, who was believed to be the author of this psalm, says, the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand, then the Messiah is obviously superior to David and not merely a descendant or a son of David as many in Judaism thought. So this quote shows up here, like in other places, as an affirmation of Jesus' identity, of who He was. Because essentially Jesus is asking, how can the Messiah, who is superior to David, be the son of David? Explain that riddle to me, right? And the answer that Jesus leads us to is this, is that if the Messiah is David's son, but greater or superior to David, then he simply cannot be simply David's son, but must also be God's son. He must be both. Both as the king. Now, kings in ancient Israel, listen, church, they were a mixed bag. You had some who were good, some who were bad, and some who were downright evil. Right? And Jesus, my identity is the Messiah, as, 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 this, as the Messiah, Adonai, the one who had come, David's son, God's son, whom Yahweh had said to him, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool, referring to Jesus. Jesus fulfills Psalm 110, and Jesus ultimately fulfills all the hopes, all the expectations, and all the longings that the people of Israel had in the Old Testament for their kings, for those who would rule over them, for those who would exercise dominion and authority. It's all fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, and here's where it gets really, really practical for you and I this morning. Because a part of what this means for you, a part of what it means for me is that as king, Jesus fulfills every expectation they had of Old Testament kings, that he will address and redress everything. He will address and redress everything that has ever taken place. 
See, one of the Psalms that gives a full-throated explanation of the hopes and longings for a good and righteous king is Psalm 72. Now, I want to read it to you. And I'm telling you it comes from the Bible. The, the Bible. Okay? So if I don't tell you it comes from the Bible, then you're probably going to think that I'm subscribing to some critical theory. Okay? You know, chalk me up as some, like, in, to use your terminology, left-wing liberal nut job. Okay? I know that's how some of you talk. Right? Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May He defend the cause of the poor, of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May He be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth. In His days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May He have dominion from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before Him and His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render Him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. For He delivers the needy when He calls. The poor and Him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life. And precious is their blood in His sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him all nations call Him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. Listen, throughout this psalm, there are themes of longing and themes of hope and themes of expectation that the people are petitioning God to see in the life of the king who would rule over them. Themes of righteousness, themes of prosperity, themes of flourishing, and themes of justice. And I believe in this particular psalm I just read to you, there are themes of both retributive justice and restorative justice. Not either or, both and. You know what retributive justice is? It is the punishment for wrongdoing. It's whenever a judge pronounces a sentence upon someone who has committed a crime and the sentence fits the crime, the punishment fits the crime, they should be reprimanded or perhaps imprisoned or fined or whatever it is for what they have done, the law that they have broken, what they have violated. There is retributive justice in the text as God would crush the oppressor. That's the language of the text, that He would crush him. He would return, return on His head the things that He had poured out on the heads of others. 
retributive justice, but there's also in this text restorative justice to the victim, to the poor, to the weak, and to the needy. See, God will address everything and He will redress everything. He will address every sin, every crime, every act of injustice and oppression, but He will also redress and restore those who have been those individuals who have received those acts in their selves. Listen to verse 12 again. For He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, He redeems their life. And precious is their blood in His sight. And I want to say this as clearly and unequivocally as I can this morning. That there is, and I would argue on the basis of Psalm 72 verse 14, there is a special place in the heart of Jesus for every person who has received abuse at the hands of any authority. His blood, their blood is precious in His sight. That goes for those who have been sexually abused. If you are a victim of sexual abuse at the hands of someone who is an authority over you, an older family member, a boss, a teacher, I want you to know there's a special place in the heart of God for you. Your wounds are precious in His sight. And I want you to know He can redress them. He can restore you. I want to say as well, there's a special place in the heart of God for those who have experienced partiality within the systems of our culture and at times brutality at the hands of authority that's supposed to uphold the law. Listen, if you're a police officer here this morning, I'm not painting you with a broad brush and saying that you're all that way. In the same way that I hope you wouldn't paint me with a broad brush and say all pastors embezzle money from the churches and cheat on their wives. Okay? But listen, this is real. And it happens. And it has happened over the course of centuries. The reason it's so prominent now is because people video it all the time. Listen, there's a special place in the heart of God if you have been the one who has received partial treatment or brutal treatment at the hands of authority. This ravages people's lives. Abuse. But I want you to know, based on what this text says, that He, listen, when the needy cry out, what does He do? He meets them. He moves toward the poor, toward the weak, toward the one who has no helper, no one to assist, no one to listen, no one to cry out, no one to use their voice on their behalf. He moves towards them to redress and restore what has been broken. So there's nothing in your life, church, no place of pain, no place of pressure that He's not able to redress and restore and heal. Let me see if I can make it real plain for you and illustrate it for you this way. Listen, my father, he is the tomato supplier for a good segment of the population of South Lake Charles, Louisiana. Okay? When, we, when me and my brother moved out of the house, he turned really the back half of their acre lot into a garden. 
It grows all kinds of stuff back there, right? It grows tomatoes, which is most famous for in town, right? It grows tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, zucchini, eggplant. He's trying his hand at asparagus this year. I mean, he's planting all kinds of stuff in the ground and reaping large harvests every time that he does. Now, if you talk to him or if you talk to any gardener, they'll tell you the success or failure of a garden hinges on several things. First of all, the seed that you're planting. Now, the seeds that he plants, listen, he has been at this for a while, because I've been out of the house for a while, <laughs> longer and longer every year, but he's been at it for a while, so he's gone through all kinds of seeds and all kinds of suppliers to where he's nailed down right, the exact right seed to produce the exact right results that he wants to see. So he orders those seeds from seed catalogs. He's not going to Walmart and picking up stuff off the shelf. He's ordering from seed catalogs, Right? And so he's got this dialed into a science. But he would tell you that you can put the best seed in substandard soil and it's not going to produce anything. And so what he began to do is he, on a back portion of the property, is he made these four large compost bins. Right, four large, and in those compost bins, he's dumping all kinds of stuff. He's dumping grass clippings, leaves that he's raking up in the yard. He's got old like vegetables and produce that he's throwing out in there as it decomposes. He's going to the farm at the local university and college and collecting manure on his trailer. That's a real pleasant smell when he gets home, right? And bringing it in, dumping it into those, mixing it all in. And so essentially, what is in those compost bins is defecation and decay that's what's in there but over time as all of that takes place in those compost bins it begins to break down all of those elements and it begins to make this nutrient rich soil additive that he tills into the native soil of his backyard and as a result whenever he casts those seeds and plants those seeds they find themselves in rich fertile soil and it produces an abundant harvest and all I'm trying to tell you this morning church is that no matter what defecation and decay is in your past that you have a king who's able to redress and restore all of it and cause your life to bloom like a flourishing garden and receive a hundredfold harvest of everything you feel like you've lost when you look over your shoulder. I don't know if that's good news for anybody else, but it is for me. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the king was supposed to be and do. And that means, listen, for those of you who've experienced abuse, for those of you who've experienced adultery, the, the perpetuation of injustice in your marriage, or within your family, or within higher governmental officials, or perhaps you've experienced the pain and heartache of fatherlessness as an orphan, which is another category of individuals near to the heart of God in the Old Testament. And so, listen, I am not trying to diminish the fatherlessness of those of you who have lost a father to death. I've got a best friend who died last year and his children are now fatherless. And so there was no way that I would diminish the weight and pain that they feel. But there is another type of fatherlessness that is pervasive within our nation because though some of you had never lost your father to death, he was as good as dead in the home. 
And so regardless of which end of that spectrum you fall on, I want you to know that God is able to redress that and restore it. And be a father to the fatherless. A husband to the widow. A helper to the poor and the needy. If you would but call on Him. This is His true identity, church. And He fulfills it perfectly. Perfectly. Now, this is who He is. How ought we respond? Listen, there, because this text not only reveals His true identity, but also our reasonable response. Our reasonable response. There's a very intentional contrast or juxtaposition here in Mark's Gospel. In verses 38 to 40, Listen, Jesus, he puts the scribes on blast, okay? He goes at them hard. Now, the scribes in Jesus' day, they commanded unrivaled religious authority. They wore these long flowing robes, which were full-length prayer shawls with tassels attached to the four corners that were made of wool or linen and caused them to stand out as people of prominence, prestige, and significance in their culture. They were the important folk, Okay? So they loved, Jesus says, the seats in the synagogues, the best seats in the synagogues. And here's where the best seats in the synagogues were. The common folk in the synagogue, they all sat on the floor. But there were benches that lined the walls of the synagogue and were situated on the dais or the stage of the synagogue. And this is where the scribes loved to sit because they could sit facing the congregation and be seen by the congregation. And they could be elevated above the congregation as those who had the authority to interpret the law. So they loved those seats. When a scribe walked through the market or down the street, everyone was expected to rise before him. And this sort of position and privilege of the scribes, listen, it fostered a desire to make an impression so that whenever they went into the marketplaces, they expected to be greeted in the book, right? Whenever they went to banquets, they expected the places of honor. That's what Jesus says. Now, scribes, listen, as a general rule, they were not wealthy individuals. They were largely dependent upon the generosity and hospitality of others. And Jesus blasts them again for taking advantage of and abusing the generosity and hospitality of the poor and the needy when he says they devour widows' houses. As a result, Jesus says those who practice religion for the purpose of self-promotion self-aggrandizement, and self-advancement, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why? Because Jesus has just laid out the heaviest of the commandments, which was what? Love God supremely and love others genuinely. So Jesus says for those who love themselves supremely, and for those who out of their pride and their greed take advantage of others genuinely, They deserve what the Greek says as abundant judgment. The greater condemnation. So you've got the scribes in verses 38 to 40. And then verses 41 to 44, Jesus sits down across the temple treasury and He watches all sorts of people put in all sorts of offerings. Now listen, if I was a particular type of preacher, especially one who's getting ready to launch a capital campaign in the fall, I would say, you know, Jesus saw what those people gave. And he sees what you give too. But honestly, that is not the point of this text. (laughs) Right? See, the point of this text is this, is that in addition, you understand something about the temple, in addition to worship, one of the most important aspects of the temple 
was for it to function as a depository for and place of distribution of immense amounts of wealth. Taxes were brought to the temple. Dues were paid in the temple. The donation of uh, valuable objects was made at the temple. Vessels for worship were made of precious metals, of gold and of silver. There were stocks, piles of precious curtains and priestly garments. There were storehouses for grain and oil and wine and incense. In fact, the temple treasury in Jerusalem was the, one of the largest depositories of ancient wealth in the world. And it was, this temple treasury was located in the court of the women. Right, so you had the court of the Gentiles, then you had the sanctuary, which Jews could come, in, Jews could come into to worship, then you had the court of the women and children, where they could come and worship, right? and then you had the holy place where Jewish men could go worship in the Holy of Holies, where the high priest went in once a year. But in the court of the women, here is the temple treasury. And Jesus sits down across from it and sees all the chests that are outlined there, which had these large circular horn-shaped extensions off of them for people to put money down into, right? You put money in that thing at the mall where it just kind of goes round and round and round and then go blink, drops in. I imagine that. It's like a shofar coming off the chest. The top's very narrow. The bottom's very large so nobody can get their hand in the top to take stuff out of it, <laughs> all right? They knew what they were doing. And it's likely into one of these chests that the widow makes her offering. And the offering that she makes, listen, church, in the Greek, it is two lepta. Now, lepta were the smallest coins of Jesus' day. Smallest coins in circulation. In fact, the English text tries to give us an equivalency. It says, you know, it's smaller than, those two combined were smaller than one penny. And, but the way that Mark describes what's taking place here, I want you to know it's breathtaking. The scribes of verses 38 to 40 who love pretense, make a display of their position, devour widows' houses out of their greed, are set in stark contrast with the unassuming, unnamed, poor, devout widow who is the picture of humility and generosity. The former Jesus condemns greatly. The latter He commends and holds up as an example of what it means to follow Him. And so our reasonable response to following Jesus, listen church, here it is, is to trust Him with all of your life for the rest of your life. Trust Him with all of your life for the rest of your life. Let me unpack that for you. In this scathing condemnation of the scribes, Jesus is drawing on a theme from the Old Testament prophets that where God, again, we saw earlier, identifies with the poor and with the needy. See, all throughout the Old Testament, God says, when you give to the poor, you give to me. When you insult the poor, you insult me. And I believe what He's saying through this this continued theme is that my heart is so bound up with the widow. My heart is so bound up with the poor. My heart is so bound up with the sojourner, the alien. My heart is so bound up with those who are in need that if you move against them, I see that as a move against me. As a move against me, myself, and I. If you ignore them, you ignore me. Jesus draws on that vein of teaching from the Old Testament, then He develops in His own teaching that same theme in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, we read this, verses 41 and following. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And Jesus says, They will... They will, also, they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, I don't believe what Jesus is saying here is that if you care for the poor, it will save your soul. It's not what he's saying. As if you can go out and start enough nonprofits and enough organizations to care for the needy and the poor in our midst, and that will merit favor with God and that He will save you on account of your good work. That's not what He's saying. Rather, what I believe He's saying is this, is that if you have no room in your heart for the needy, no room in your heart for the poor, both the deserving and the undeserving, you have no room in your heart for the stranger, the alien, the prisoner, the hungry and the thirsty, then you have no room in your heart for me. None for me. Which is why in verse 44, we read Jesus saying, highlighting this gift of the poor widow and saying that though the amount of her gift was small and negligible, her sacrifice was the greatest because out of her poverty, she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on, church. I want to key you into that last phrase there, all she had to live on. I'm not aware of an English translation that is as bold and as radical as the Greek text. Because the, the, the Greek text doesn't say, doesn't say this. It doesn't say she put in all her chalkos, which is the Greek word for money. It says rather she put in all her bios, which was the Greek word for life. Her life. Her very life she's putting into that chest. How, how in the world can these two small coins be her life? Listen, here's how. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, when the rich give, which they were doing, they came by and made all kinds of offerings. When the rich give, when the wealthy give, and listen, if you think that you're not rich here this morning, I could run down the statistics for you. Okay? I've done it many times in the past about a family making X amount of dollars with two kids in our culture is in the upper 5% of the world's wealth. Okay? And that number is much smaller than you would perceive it to be. But when the rich give, listen, they give out of their margin. They give out of their excess. See, when wealthy individuals give, what they typically do is they tend to give in ways that do not cut into their hobbies, their houses, or their vacations. But when the poor give, when the poor give, they give not out of their margin, but out of their very life. Because as she puts those two coins there into the temple treasury, she was putting those coins in the box and taking food out of her mouth. She was putting those coins in the box and taking clothing off of her back. She was putting those coins in the box and taking a roof from her head as she puts it, all her chips in the center of the table and puts in everything that she had, even her entire life. See, when we give, we give insofar as it doesn't cause us to lose our ability to control our lives. Like, we'll give to an extent... Right? As long as we can maintain control, we can still dine where we want, we can still travel where we want, we can still build what we want, we can still drive what we want. We'll get to that point because we can still retain control over our lives. But whenever she puts those two small coins in, she was putting her entire bios, her entire life, she no longer, church, had any control. She had relinquished all 
control. She had put all of her life in. Now you might ask the question, why is this little story here? And here's the reason I believe it's here, because this marks the end of Jesus' public teaching ministry. From this point forward, it marks gospel. When he's teaching, he's teaching his disciples in private. His public teaching comes to an end here. But when Jesus opens his public teaching in Mark chapter 1, when he opens his public preaching ministry, he does so by saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule of God's breaking into human history. The king has come. And then the very next thing that he does in Mark chapter 1 is he calls his first disciples and he says, follow me. Follow me. He opens his public ministry by saying, the king has come, you follow me. He closes his public ministry by saying, the king has come, follow me. And here's what it means to follow me. It means that you give up all control. It means there's no closets in which you're hanging on to something. Right? I've used this illustration before. It means there's no fence lines in your life where you have posted signs set up and say, God, no trespassing in this quadrant. <laughs> right? I'm going to retain control over this. You can have control over this. And we're just going to work out a mutually beneficial arrangement, God. Right? I'll lease back to you the parts of my life that aren't super important to me that I have control over. And I'll retain ownership of the parts that are super important to me to have control over. I'll kind of keep those things tucked away. Jesus starts his public ministry by saying, the king has come, follow me. He ends it by saying, the king has come, follow me. And following me means you give up control. Not of this piece or of this parcel, but of the whole lock, stock, and barrel. Exactly as this widow had done. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's our reasonable response to Him. To trust Him with all of our life for the rest of our lives. Listen, church, I wonder. I wonder if there are areas of our lives this morning in which we do not trust Him. I wonder if there are mindsets that have become like strongholds in our lives that fight and resist against the revealed Word of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, because we're trying to retain control. I wonder if there are certain actions, certain behaviors, patterns, addictions in our lives, and we continue to give ourselves to them because through them we believe we can control what's going on. Right? We can get another hit from that. We can get another hit from that. We can get another hit from that. So we don't give it up. I wonder if there are mindsets, actions, behaviors, patterns in our lives in which we have not relinquished control. And Jesus says, listen, I can restore and redress anything, but you've got to give up control. You've got to give up control. Listen, as Jesus closes His public ministry, He says, put your whole life in. As we close, I want to tell you, that's exactly what he did for us. He put his whole life in. See, Jesus doesn't just emotionally, in Jesus, God doesn't just emotionally identify with the poor, but he personally, practically, and radically does. Because when Jesus is born, he's not born in a palace, he's born in a barn and placed in a feed trough. 
He's born to poor parents. He has to ask earlier in Mark's gospel for a coin when he's asked about paying taxes because he doesn't have any of his own. You with me? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, He's homeless. He has no place to lay His head. He personally, practically, and radically identifies with the poor. And on the cross, He was stripped naked and He becomes absolutely penniless. And listen, church, only Christianity dares say that God became poor, exploited, thirsty, hungry, weak, and devoured at the cross. He lost all control for the sake of my soul, for the sake of your soul. On the cross, Jesus was condemned in our place so that we could be pardoned. He has lost control so that you and I can know salvation. So don't ever ask, Lord, where did we see you naked? Lord, where did we see you hungry? Lord, where did you cry out that you thirst? Because He will say at the cross, at the cross, Jesus put His life in the box. So I'll close with this illustration. In 1859, there was a French acrobat named Charles Blondin. Now, Blondin was an amazing acrobat. And performed all kinds of tricks, all kinds of stunts. And so, in the summer of 1859, he stretched a tightrope across Niagara Falls in upstate New York. And he walked across it, right? The whole thing, balancing, getting across. And there were about 10,000 people there that day whenever he walks across Niagara Falls. And the response was such that he and his manager, Harry, uh, uh, Harry uh, Colcord, said, and this is great, let's bring him back next week and we'll do a stunt with it, right? Not just walk across, but we'll do something a little bit more fantastic. So the people come back next week and he does a stunt. And they say, okay, we've got to do a bigger stunt the next week. So he comes back the next week, does a bigger stunt. Some of the stunts he did, he like somersaults out there on the tightrope. He did, uh, you know, handstands out there on the tightrope. Uh, you know, one week he went across with a sack on his head. The next week he bicycled across the tightrope. One week, this is a great one, right? He took a stove with a fire in it, put it in a wheelbarrow, and walked it out there onto the tightrope, midway across, made himself an omelet, ate it, and walked back. That's pretty good. And so they, they, as they kept upping the ante on what they were going to do to amaze the people, they started to run out of ideas until finally the summer was coming to a close and they realized they've got to top it all off because each week the crowd was building to see what he was going to do next. So they announced one week, the next week would be his final week, and that week he would carry a person on his back across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. Of course, the crowd goes nuts, right? So they begin to publicize, like recruit for this whole ordeal. So they put ads in the paper and they say, we will pay $1,000 to, in, in 1859, mind you, $1,000 to any person willing to be carried across the Niagara Falls on the tightrope on, Harry Blond, on, on, on Charles Blondin's back. So they had all these people turn out, Right? And so they all come up and they walk up to the edge of the falls. They look out, they see the tightrope and Blondin goes out there. He does some tricks and somersaults and carries a sack out there to show that he could actually do it. And he comes back to the land and he looks at each and every one of the people who had shown up that day and says, do you believe that I can carry you across Niagara Falls on that rope? And to a person, they said, yes, we believe. 
And then he asked the question, will you let me carry you across that Niagara Falls on that rope? And to a person, they said, you are out of your mind. Because our problem is not just intellectual, church. It's a willingness to trust, to place our trust and believe. So he he and his manager got together and said, well, what are we going to do? There's 100,000 people. That's what the newspapers reported. There's about 100,000 people that show up to see this stunt that day. And so Blondin turns to his manager and he says, Harry, you got to do it. <laughs> you got to do it. So Harry, in, in his fear and intrepidation, agrees to get on Charles Blondin's back, and Blondin begins to make his way across the falls, about halfway across. Right? You can imagine it's difficult, probably, to carry a person on your shoulders across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. I, I couldn't do it without a person. Like, I couldn't do it with a five-foot swath of something to walk on, all right? But here he is, carrying this person, his manager, on his back. Now two people's lives were at stake. And they get midway across. And the newspapers report, you know, the wind begins to blow, and he begins to sway a little bit. You can imagine the terror of Harry sitting on Charles' shoulders, wondering, this is it, Right? And so as they begin to sway, Blondin is swaying back and forth. And so every time Blondin would sway to the left, Harry would try to sway to the right to counterbalance what was going on, right? And then Blondin would sway to the left and Harry would counterbalance to the right. And so finally, as they're at, at, nearing a point where they're, they're about to tip, tr- the newspapers reported Charles Blondin yelled above the soaring, raging falls. And the, this, these are the words that he said that were reported. He says to his manager, Harry, He says, Harry, until I clear this place, you must become a part of me. Mind, body, and soul. If I sway, you must rest in me completely and sway with me. You must not attempt to do any balancing yourself. If you do, we shall both go down to our death. Essentially what Blondin says is the same thing Jesus says. If you want to save your life, you want to... If you keep your life for yourself, you're going to lose it. If you give up your life, you're going to save it. If you rest fully in God and trust He's able to redress anything that's taken place in your life, He's able to restore anything that's been broken or shattered in your past, if you would trust that He can be the King who would execute justice, both retributive and restorative justice in your life, that listen, when he sways, you sway with him, even though you may not understand, because you've given up control, you're fully trusting in him. They made it across. They didn't plunge to their death, but of course, there was one who did. <laughs> See, the reason you and I can trust that Jesus will carry us and never drop us is because he himself was plunged below the falls for us. This is who He is, church. He's a great King. The Messiah. David's Son and God's Son who has come to address and redress everything. Will you, will you trust in Him with all of your life for the rest of your life. Sway when it feels like He's swaying. Not try to counterbalance 
and make things happen on your own, but yield control. That's what money's about anyway in our lives, oftentimes about control. You give it up and yield it to Him and see Him make a garden out of all the decaying matter from your past. Let's pray together. Father, today, we come thanking You for Jesus, our King, who is our only King, who's a good King, who's a great King, who's a perfect and righteous King, who would fulfill every expectation we would have of one in authority. And Father, I pray that You would give us the grace that we need this morning to see Him for who He is. That it's, and to understand His power in our lives. To do marvelous, wondrous things, as Psalm 72, 18 says. So Father, in our need, in our brokenness, in those areas of pain and pressure in our lives from past encounters, past words that were spoken, even past sins that we committed. We ended up in very dark places, maybe not because of what someone else said or did, but because of what we said and did. Father, help us to see truly that He can take all of that compost of our lives and cause something beautiful to grow in that soil. If we would but yield control. And trust Him with everything. Father, today, may we potentially take inventory of those parcels of land that are posted in our lives. May we tear down those fences. May we open those doors. May we give up control. The thing that we're all desperate to hang on to. And know the freedom and the flourishing and the true prosperity of putting our whole life in a box. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.